Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, Brooke Nindorf with you on this third day of January. Thanks for your company. Coming up, we're going to hear about funding that's just been announced uh, this morning for drought-affected, sorry, not drought, flooded-affected areas. Plus, while many growers are still battling the worst outbreak of downy mildew in decades, other threats are emerging, such as powdery mildew. When the focus comes on the downy mildew, growers tend to take the eye off of powdery mildew and some of the sprays that are required early in the season for that. You know, powdery mildew management is, is critical in the first 40 days after bud burst. And if you miss a beat, miss a trick here or there, um, you're going to be in a bit of trouble later in the We'll have more on that story shortly. I'd love to hear from you as well. Later on, we're going to hear about how to best pick your summer fruit. So what is your favourite? Is it maybe a mango? Is it a stone fruit of some sort? Let me know. And if there are any tricks that you know of, of picking a good one, you can send me a text on 0467922891. Would love to hear from you. Now, as you just heard before, it has been announced in the last hour that residents and businesses in nine South Australian local government areas are now able to apply for a range of assistance to help them clean up, get back to business and back into their homes. It was announced that $126.25 million will be available for further disaster assistance for communities hit by the flooding that peaked in Renmark on Boxing Day and is subsequently impacting downriver areas. So the nine local government areas eligible for the funding are the Alexandrina Council, Berry Barmer Council, Coorong District Council, the District Council of Coorunda East Murray, District Council of Loxton, Wakery, Mid Murray Council, Murray Bridge Council, the Pastoral Unincorporated Area and Renmark Paringa Council. Now, the funding was announced by the state and federal government and is being provided through the jointly funded Commonwealth State Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangements. Grant applicants so far announced by Peter Malinowskis at the press conference included 141 applicants for early business closure and 166 generator grants. So this latest funding includes $10 million to assess damage to primary residential properties, including structural damage, electrical infrastructure and reconnection of services. There is small business recovery grants. There's a waste management program. Uh, there's black water at $800,000 to assist with cleanup of large-scale fish kills and legal assistance as well, $250,000 for those affected people and businesses. And then the primary producer recovery grant, which is $45.9 million. So it'll be up to $75,000 per producer, and that's for cleanup and reinstatement of the primary producer businesses. So to take a look at this primary producer grant and what it might mean, we're joined by Andrew Curtis, CEO of the South Australian Dairy Association. Good afternoon, Andrew. Good afternoon, Brooke. So what's your initial reaction to this funding? Look, we, we absolutely welcome it. We were um, expecting, hoping for it. We recognise that um, primary producers in, in up, up, up river states had, had received a similar grant. Um, so we, yeah, we um, are relieved and pleased that it, it's been made available in South Australia. Obviously, you're representing dairy farmers. How much is it needed in the in the dairy industry? Look, and and you were talking earlier in the program about the, the peak moving moving down. We haven't had the peak 
um, river heights in, uh, below Manham in, in the dairying regions as yet. Um, but certainly we have a, a range of dairies that are already been uh, inundated, um, significantly impacted by the floods, and it's be vital for them to be able to get into, starting to, to get into recovery. How much did dairy farmers out of pocket? Oh, look, I won't be able to tell you that. No one will be able to tell you that until we can actually get the water off off the um, off the uh, swamps. Um, but all dairy farmers are significantly out of profit, out of pocket already in terms of what they've invested in trying to keep the water at bay. We've heard from some of them who are you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars just uh, trying to build levees to to protect their uh, their properties and their their dairy farms. What do you think will, will mainly be applied for? We heard about people applying for generators, but anything you particularly think of in the, the dairy industry? Look, we've been working with FURSA uh, and, and with the Environment Department around um, levies for generators and levies, uh, so um, grants for, for generators and grants for levy in, enhancements, uh, and we've welcomed those. Um, uh, but there's just so much to be done in terms of feed, in terms of yeah, maintaining cattle, uh, in terms of um, alternate feeding arrangements. There's just so much that needs to happen. Um, and then obviously the recovery, look, we just don't know. We know that there'll be a lot of damage to the drainage systems on, on swamps once once the water recedes. We know that there'll be issues with fencing, etc. There's so much infrastructure that will be damaged um, as, a res- as a result of the floods, and um, but we don't know until we can see it. We've heard uh, agricultural levies uh, downstream from, from Blanchetown have been impacted by, by these floods. Uh, Maipalonga, Tura, Mobilong, Cora, Woolflat, Long Island, Longflat, um, just some of them, they've either been breached or, or overtopped. How are dairy farmers going in, in these areas and, and further down? Uh, Look, in those areas, um, and most of them have been breached from what we understand, rather than uh, there's been a little bit of overtopping, but predominantly it's, it's been breaches. So there's been a failure in the levee wall. Um, uh, look, initial, like, initially, um, you know, it's, it's catastrophic. Um, and then it's about just, just working through understanding what, you know, what do we need to do? And in some ways, you know, there's clarity around, OK, we now know what's happened and, and we, can, we move to, to the next phase, to maintaining the business and, and looking towards recovery. For the people further down and below Murray Bridge, it's still that waiting game of not knowing whether they've done enough, knowing what to do next because the peak hasn't arrived, the levees, uh, for the most part, are still intact, um, but we just don't know. Just finally, Andrew, you, you've touched on this a bit, but what is the association doing to to assist? Look, uh, primarily we're working with, with our, our members and with dairy farmers um, to make sure they've got the most support and, and, and information as possible ahead of any, um, any breach. Uh, and we're working very closely with both well, with all the with all the services, with FURSA, um, uh, with the Environment Department, with the SES, um, to yeah, to make sure that um, things can be as coordinated as possible. 
Well, Andrew, we really do appreciate your time on the Country Hour today. Thank you for joining us, and uh, uh, we'll uh, we'll touch base uh, down the track with how our dairy farmers in, in South Australia are going with uh, with these floods. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Brooke. That was Andrew Curtis. He's the CEO of the South Australian Dairy Association. And uh, as it was announced uh, just earlier this morning, $126.25 million will be available for further disaster assistance for those uh, communities hit by the flooding, uh, which peaked in Renmark on Boxing Day and uh, and then is subsequently impacting downriver areas. And uh, for more information about these grants, um, you can contact the South Australian Relief Hotline on 1800 302 787 or visit sa.gov.au Slash, uh, slash floods and for further information on disaster assistance can be found on the Australian Government's Disaster Assist website and uh, there's more information online as well at abc.net.au slash news and we'll be uh, following uh, more funding um, announcements and, and funding uh, reactions uh, over the next few days so make sure you tune in for that. Brooke Nindorf with you today it's coming up to 14 minutes past 12. Half a step forward put to the pitch. ABC Sports Summer of Cricket. This is party time. On the ABC Listen app. Every ball. Punching this through the offside. Every catch. That is an extraordinary catch. Every wicket. Bowling! Wicket's tumbling. Live. Another hundred. And ad free. Oh, wow. ABC Sports Summer of Cricket. Live on the ABC Listen app. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Now, while many growers are still battling the worst outbreak of downy mildew in decades, other threats are also emerging. Recent weather has started to cause concerns for upcoming crops, which are showing signs of powdery mildew earlier than expected. Portfolio lead for viticulture and fruit for Syngenta, Scott Matthews, says while downy mildew is causing major problems, growers need to keep a watchful eye out for powdery mildew. Yeah, the, the focus has been definitely on treating downy mildew this season with the rainfall that we've had and the number of infection periods. And, and what's unusual this year is it's widespread across all major grape-growing regions in Australia. When the focus comes on the downy mildew, growers tend to take the eye off of powdery mildew and some of the sprays that are required early in the season for that. You know, powdery mildew management is, is critical in the first 40 days after bud burst. And if you miss a beat, miss a trick here or there, um, you're going to be in a bit of trouble later. And is that something you've been observing? Yeah, definitely. I've been seeing powdery mildew coming through in some bunches and some areas probably a little bit earlier than you would normally see it. But, uh, I mean, people sort of associate powdery mildew uh, with the hot, dry conditions or the hotter, warmer conditions. But it loves those mild conditions as well. And a little bit of rainfall just keeps the disease tricking over at a faster rate earlier in the season. So we're starting to see some berries um, a little bit earlier in the year than we normally would. So how else is it comparing to other years? Uh, It's probably in some areas and with some growers that are generally very good at what they're doing. They're just having some holes in their programs chasing around, trying to get on top of the downy mildew. And it's just leaving some gaps and product choices. It's a little bit difficult at times with some of the supply issues. Uh, So they're having to go and and go when they can. Um, And it's just left a few gaps in their programs early through that pre-flowering, through that flowering period where they've been really concentrating on downy. And we're just seeing powdery mildew on a few bunches. And how is the fight with downy mildew going as well? Yeah, it's been a real struggle. There's some growers that have, have... 
done the right things, got the right products on at the right time. There's some other growers that, for whatever reason, whether it be uh, the fact they haven't been able to get into their blocks after the rain, they've been at the end of a spray interval. So normally we work on a 10 to 14-day interval. If the growers are closer to that 14 days, the, the, the protection against downy mildew is starting to decline. And then it's a real struggle to get in and get on top of it again. So there's, there's some growers that have done really well. There's some growers that have been unfortunate with circumstances that, you know, I've seen some varietal losses, complete losses out there. Where have those complete losses been? From the Barossa through the Riverland through to the Sunraysia and even up into the Griffith or the Murrumbidgee irrigation area. Um, I haven't had too many reports of complete losses down in the, in the Coonawarra region or the southern Victorian regions. But yeah, certainly know of complete varietal losses in, in the Murrumbidgee irrigation area, Mildura, um, or the Sunraysia, the Riverland and through into the Barossa. What advice would you have for growers battling this at the moment? Just be vigilant that, you know, as the temperatures are warming up, just be careful um, using sulphur on, on powdery mildew infections. Just be mindful um, that the temperature and humidity combination is more important than just temperature alone. Um, and, and be careful when you get days of 40-plus degree heat come out of the blue like we have. You know, we've had a pretty mild year and then all of a sudden we get a couple of days of 40 in some of the inland irrigated wine regions. And that can cause some challenges on its own. Has the recent conditions some of the most difficult you've seen? Yeah, look, I've been in the industry um, either, you know, uh, back in my university days in the early 90s and also working on a vineyard back then through to, to now. I haven't seen widespread down in Mildred conditions this bad in that time in the industry. So that's, um, you know, over 30 years. It's been one. Of, it's been the singularly most challenging season. Um, the number of phone calls I get is, is incredible at times, and particularly earlier in the or late spring period. But yeah, it's, it's certainly the, uh, the most challenging season I've seen in over thirty years. That was Scott Matthew from Syngenta speaking with Elsie Adamo. Now, Hills and Fluorio Landscape Board's Sustainable Agriculture Officer, John Butler, has been leading an awareness campaign to educate landholders about soil. It's part of the federal government's National Soil Strategy released in 2021 to increase the awareness of the importance of soil health. Mr Butler explains how the plan is rolling out. There's three uh, main aspects of that kind of come together to um, create a healthy soil. So that's the soil's chemistry, um, the physical structure of the soil and the soil biology. And farmers uh, and agronomists pay a lot of attention to the soil chemistry component. Um, and I guess that's, you know, that's because it's something that is able to be measured and, and understood and influenced reasonably easily. Um, but because there's a lot of attention paid to that already, uh, well, at least here um, uh, in my position, we're decide- we've decided to focus a bit more on the other aspects. So, yeah, the uh, soil biology and the structure of the soil. And how keen have people been to get involved? Uh, yeah, it's actually had a lot of interest. It's absolutely um, surprised me how... <laughs> how popular some of our workshops um, that we've been putting on have been. Uh, They've been pretty much selling out, uh, or usually they're free, so (laughs) booking out. But, uh, yeah, we've been getting, you know, 60 to 100-plus people to each of the workshops that we've been uh, putting on, which is, yeah, I think a great turnout for for soil. It's not the... uh, not the most sexy of <laughs> of things to try to uh, get people interested in, but yeah, to get a that sort of numbers turnout, I think that's a great outcome. And this really coincides with a, a government push in this area. How is the work you're doing in the Hills and Fluria working in with the government soil strategy? There's lots of components to the um, 
to the National Soil Strategy, and uh, one of the big ones is, uh, is based around education and around uh, increasing awareness of the importance of, of soil health. And, and so I guess that's where my role fits in, um, is, is around that education aspect. But there's lots of other components as well. So there's a um, pilot monitoring and incentives program where um, farmers were able to access some um, subsidies for soil testing and get paid for data from previous soil testing. And there's also a lot of money going into new soil research as well. What do you think are some of the main challenges and opportunities you're facing, particularly when it comes to soil health in the Fleurion Hills region? The biggest challenge for soils and soil health in our region um, is soil acidity. So soil acidity can be caused by the application of nitrogen fertilisers and uh, the removal of nutrients from harvested crops and animals. But another big factor, especially in uh, our region, is uh, leaching of nutrients due to our high rainfall and sandy soils. And yeah, acidic soils can uh, limit root growth and the, the availability of nutrients to plants. Uh, and extreme, in extreme cases, they can cause uh, aluminium toxicity, which is yeah, really bad for, for plant growth. Uh, and also the, the acidity can have a big impact on the soil biology and the microbes that live in the soil. You say that some of the information on soils is outdated. What are some of the main uh, new pieces of information you want people to know about? The really big thing that's changed over the last, say, 10 years, but even more so the last five years, is our understanding of the soil biology and the way that soil biology and soil organic matter and carbon interact. So, yeah, our understanding of, of the way that soil stores carbon and, and uses carbon and, and the um, functions that carbon perform in the soil has actually come a, a long way. So um, that's one of the places where we'll probably be um, yeah, wanting to update the information and, and get, give people access to the latest kind of uh, scientific information that's only been coming out of the last kind of 10 to 5 years worth of research. So if people want to find out more about what they can do to improve the soil on their place, what sort of things will you be doing in the region in 2023? We'll probably be putting on quite a few more um, workshops and field days and um, also doing some demonstration sites and we also uh, are going to be putting out a, a lot of updated and new um, uh, information sheets, I guess, is the best way to describe them, uh, around some of the new science that's coming out. So a lot of, uh, a lot of information out there about soils is, is quite outdated, so we're going to be doing a lot of updating of the information, I guess, available to, to landholders and farmers. Hills and Fleurio Landscape Board Sustainable Agriculture Officer John Butler speaking to Cassie Huff. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Let's find out what's happening in the uh, the weather scene on this uh, Tuesday, January the 3rd. We're joined by the Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, Vince Rollins. Good afternoon, Vince. Good afternoon, Brooke. What's happening around the state? Yeah, pretty quiet at the moment. Um, just under the influence of a high-pressure ridge uh, sitting over, over the state, and that's extending from a high-pressure system that's sitting southwest of WA at the moment. So, yeah, pretty... Uh, Pretty stable conditions over most parts of the state in a southerly, a cooler southerly airstream. So, yeah, we are seeing uh, temperatures a bit cooler than what we saw yesterday, maybe apart from the far northeast where we're still expecting uh, temperatures in the low, low 40s up through that region. And we've still got a little bit of a lingering trough up in the far northeast as well. We could generate a little bit of uh, gusty thunderstorm activity later this afternoon, but uh, yeah, that's 
pretty well confined just to the far northeast. So, uh, yeah, not much else happening across the the rest of the state and really not much is going to change over the next several days. So that high-pressure system is going to slowly move eastwards um, over the next several days. We'll see winds just slowly going a little bit more southeasterly, but uh, yeah, as we head into tomorrow, probably going to see these uh, milder conditions continuing, maybe a touch cooler around southern coastal fringes, but uh, that uh, that cooler air is going to push into the far northeast as well. So we still have that heat. Uh, wave warning up for that region but uh, that's likely to be finalised today as those cooler conditions extend throughout. But uh, looking at generally dry conditions uh, right across the state maybe just a a lingering shower up in the far northeast corner but uh, not expecting too much out of that but uh, fine conditions continuing into Thursday and then Friday but we do see a trough starting to move across the state uh, over the weekend. So we will see winds going northeasterly ahead of that trough, really driving those temperatures up. So we're looking at uh, hot to very hot conditions extending across most of the state over the weekend, um, as those, as I said, as those winds go northerly. But uh, once we see the wind swing round to the south behind that trough, again, we'll get uh, some, some cooling as uh, the winds extend a little bit further north. So a uh, pretty similar trend to what we've seen over last uh, last week or two, just those high-pressure systems moving eastwards, winds going northerly, temperatures heat up for, for a few days, and then we get that uh, that change coming through, just bringing some, some milder conditions. But uh, as far as weather goes, look, <clears throat> it's really not going to see anything, as I mentioned, right across the state uh, until we hit the weekend and then it looks like uh, XTC Ellie is going to start tracking eastwards and uh, move across parts of Northern Territory and that's going to bring some tropical moisture down over northern parts of the state so extending over the pastoral districts by the end of the weekend and uh, that's going to drive some shower and thunderstorm activity through those parts so likely to see some pretty good falls with that as well if, if the system depending on where the system travels but uh, could see some pretty good uh, rainfall figures up around the northern parts of the pastoral district so uh, yeah may maybe uh a bit much <laughs> could cause some some issues with some of the outback roads but uh, yeah could see some falls getting up into that around a 50 millimeter mark so we'll be watching that one pretty closely but elsewhere across the state maybe some coastal showers on monday and tuesday just light ones with those southerly winds but uh, yeah dry over the remainder so i suppose the focus uh over the next week is uh these milder conditions continuing for the next few days really heating up over the weekend and then some shower and thunderstorm activity in the north as we get that in feed of tropical moisture brook Thanks very much, Vince. And uh, Vince, before I let you go, we're going to be looking at summer fruit shortly. Do you have a uh, Do you have a favourite summer fruit? Uh, probably I like um, the citrus fruits. So yeah, mandarins. Uh, pretty partial grapes as well. So yeah, it's I suppose that's uh, I'm not whether they're classed as true summer fruits, but that's basically. Um, my main staple of fruits during <laughs> summer. Well, they're definitely, uh, they still work well in summer. So, uh, Vince Rollins, thanks very much for your time today. 
Okay, cheers, Brooke. That was Vince Rollins. He's the senior weather forecaster at the uh, at the Bureau of Meteorology. Yeah, now let's have a look at the western inlands for today. For the upper western, mostly sunny with a slight chance of a shower in the far east in the afternoon. A near zero chance of rain elsewhere. Chance of a thunderstorm in the east in the afternoon and early evening. Overnight temperatures falling to between 18 and 25 with daytime temperatures reaching 31 to 39. For the lower western, a sunny morning with the chance of a thunderstorm in the far east in the afternoon. Overnight temperatures are falling to between 13 and 18 with daytime temperatures reaching around 30. Now, as I was just saying there to Vince, we're going to be having a look at summer fruit uh, very shortly, but I'd love to hear from you. How do you... Pick a good piece of summer fruit. When you go into the supermarket or the, the fruit and veg um, market, what do you do? Do you smell it? Do you pick it up? Do you feel it? What's the uh, the ideal tip? Send me a text on 0467922891. Would love to hear from you on that one. And uh, stay tuned because we're going to be heading uh, to Menindee again. We're going to check in on the flooding uh, situation there to see if things have changed uh, since yesterday. And plenty more to come. Make sure you stay tuned. Listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au/rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia, and Broken Hill, this is Brook Nindorf. Brook Nindorf. Hello, thanks for joining me today. Coming up, we're going to head to Menindee. We'll hear how the flood situation is going there plus i want to hear from you what's your favorite summer fruit what have you been enjoying lately and how do you pick a good watermelon maybe a mango your stone fruit as well we're going to find out from some growers across the country a few tips for picking summer fruit have a good smell of the fruit um you'll pick the mango up don't squeeze it too hard and but you should be able to smell the aroma um, of it coming through you can send me a text on 0467922891. What are your tips and tricks when it comes to picking summer fruit? It's, uh, it's actually making me hungry thinking about uh, smelling a mango. So uh, yeah, make sure you get in touch. Before that, let's uh, find out what's happening in the newsroom. And we're joined by Wendy Glamachak. Good afternoon, Wendy. Good afternoon, Brooke. In the news of South, the state and federal governments have unveiled a new $126 million funding package to help with the flood recovery effort in nine South Australian districts. It includes $60 million to clean up hazardous waste and grants of up to $50,000 for flood-affected businesses and up to $75,000 for flood-affected primary producers. Meanwhile, the River Murray is higher than expected at Blanchetown and there are now concerns around potential flooding in Lake Alexandrina, coinciding with high tides. Water levels have peaked in Lock and they're expected to peak at Wakery and Morgan between now and Saturday. And the federal opposition says it's perplexing that Labor's chosen to ignore the chief medical officer's advice by imposing new COVID testing rules for travellers coming in from China. In a letter dated December the 31st, the Professor Paul Kelly tells Health Minister Mark Butler there is not sufficient public health rationale for new restrictions, but his advice was overruled the following day. The government says it's taken the decision out of an abundance of caution. More ABC News news at one o'clock. Thanks very much Wendy. Wendy Glamour chat with the latest from the newsroom. 
Now, to Menindi now, and we heard yesterday about how the flooding is going from the Darling River. About 15 homes were evacuated, but uh, thankfully it sounds like the water has not risen too much more. We're joined by Broken Hill News reporter Ben Lochran to find out how it is looking there today. Good afternoon, Ben. Good afternoon, Brooke. How are you going? Very well, thanks. Now, Ben, you're in, uh, in Menindi uh, today. How are things looking now? Yeah, so we've been fighting around Menindi today chatting to a couple of locals just seeing what the situation is as it's developed over the weekend as everyone uh, knows the Darling River has kind of uh, flooded a few properties around a dozen properties in town Um, it's sitting at 10.3 metres, Water New South Wales are hopeful that the peak has passed although it may still rise to 10.7 metres we caught up today with a property owner Gary Schumacher who lives in the firing line from a couple of paddocks who have been flooded. He's had a two-metre levy built last week to stop any damage to his property, and he's hopeful that it's going to hold on with the water that's coming through the system. I've seen the, I was here in the 76 one, yeah. and I've been here in this one here now. And when it comes to the one that we've seen over the last uh, couple of days, you obviously own that, that paddock that's just been flooded out? Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. When did it get flooded? Last night. Yeah, yeah. Bit of a shock waking up in the morning? Yeah, sleepy. <laughs> yeah, well we, well, we were sleepy. So the levee, it's an absolute monstrous levee. It's probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest, that's um, actually floating around. And Indy must be bloody over two metres. Um, that got put in yesterday? That No, that got put in probably a week and a half ago. Yeah, well. yeah, yeah. Did you put it in yourself or did someone else come, up, come and help you? A, um, a gentleman with a radar from the rural fire service. He um, he pushed the dirt up and then a, another young bloke that I know of know of he come in with a front end loader and he pushed more up. <laughs> when it comes to the, the water that you've seen, you know, three years ago the river was dead. Thousands of fish carcasses laid up on the banks there. What's it like looking out and seeing it healthy and seeing the, the wildlife return and the roos, the emus, the hawks, is that all actually like a sight to behold? Well, it is. It is because um, I've seen this river up like that years and years ago, but as you say, I've seen it right down below the bottom where fish have been bloody well dying in it. I, I, I did actually see the fish bloody well down here near the um, river bridge, and they were just laying up against the bank. And it was big, big fish too. Like, there's a few Murray cod in, in amongst that. When it comes to the next sort of week for you, what do you reckon is going to happen? You're hoping, obviously, that levy holds. Um... Well, that, if that levy don't hold, watch out, Menindi. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Do you have a, an idea of when that water actually may start to recede and may head back towards the river? Well, um, don't know. This river has got a drop for that to go out of here. When it comes to how this situation's been handled by Water New South Wales, do you think that you were given, obviously, enough time notice uh, you know, that the situation went from 9.6 to what was a predicted 10.7? No, no, no. Nobody ever come near me. Water, New South Wales water has never been near this property to say that you're going to get a big 
flow of water up your bum. The reason that bank got put there was um, a volunteer, volunteer with the, um, the SES and Fibre Gate, he is the person that got that put there. So I take it, yeah, just every day now is just going to be about waking up, making sure that, <laughs> making sure you're not standing in water <laughs> getting into the kitchen or anything like that? Oh, quite true, quite true. I had a levy bank here in 76 where you were sitting here and I had two inches of free play on that bank back then. I was digging dirt next door here to put around the places where the wind, wind and the water were lapping onto the bank. That was Menindee local Gary Shoemaker. Now, Ben, what's the, the feeling like still in, in Menindee at the moment? So in Menindee, people have obviously spent the better part of five days now building levees, sandbagging properties, moving furniture and machinery in these low-lying areas that have either already been affected by the Darling River or could possibly be affected if the water does continue to rise. Right now in town, people are actually more frustrated that the fact that there's no parliamentary presence here. There's none of the elected officials. Water New South Wales is still nowhere to be seen. Local councils nowhere to be seen and neither are the state or federal members. So people are more or less just asking, why aren't we important enough to have a politician visit? So those are the questions that people really want answered right now, essentially. So we've reached out now to both the federal member, Mark Colton, and the state member, Roy Butler, to see if they will be visiting Menindi. Um, and back in Broken Hill, we have reached out and had a chat to Greg Hill, uh, the general manager for the Central Darling Shire. So it's the, it'll be interesting to see what he has to say. Definitely. And uh, we'll keep uh, up to date with what's happening with that one. Ben Lockren, thanks very much for your time today. Thank you, Brooke. Broken Hill News reporter Ben Lockram. Staying in New South Wales and a grazer who will be cut off for weeks due to flooding between Louth and Tilpa in western New South Wales says coordination between government agencies has been woeful. Grazier Stuart Laleva had a full year's worth of rain in October and the floods have caused a lot of damage. He's told Michael Condon that confusion over the Menindee flood levels was entirely avoidable and conditions are pretty difficult on his farm. Oh, look, we're still cut off, Michael. We're, um, look, I'm not sure, probably another uh, at least three weeks, I reckon a month, weather depending. The water's going down, it's dropped um, a metre and a half, I suppose. Uh, but a lot of the roads are still under and uh, yet to you know, get a good look at whatever road damage. But to get at the road damage, obviously things have got to be dry enough to be able to do it. So um, I'd reckon three weeks a month minimum. Any um, stock losses or concerns there? No, as far as flooding goes, no. Um, we got, like everybody else, a uh, real hiding with the flies um, and the ability to get, um, get at them after that uh, October where we had 12 months of rain in October and obviously yeah, more in November. Um, 12 months all, all at once in the month? In the month, yeah, right. plus what we've had in November. So we've had roughly, I wouldn't say 600 mils here for the year, but it's double our rainfall. Okay, but we had 12 inches of that in October. Well, that set you up, I suppose, but the fly's an issue. Oh, yeah, we, I think we're on top of them now. And, uh, matter of fact, when I you know, finished um, talking to you, I'm you know, getting on something to go out and have another look. Um, but it's starting to get you know, very hot. You know, it was 42 degrees here yesterday, you know, yesterday, and it was the same. I think maybe even a bit hotter here today, so that'll steady some of the flies and all that sort of shenanigans up anyway. And But obviously you've been watching the, the water issues with interest, Menindee, not far away from you, and you, you think things could have been done a lot better? 
Um, yeah, I think it's the, the, it's the lack of um, information and, and um, that is the killer and all this, and it seems to be a fairly common complaint, not only from our patch, but right up north and you know, east to west. There's no Even the, no, the north coast flooding too? Yeah, well, Pierce, oh, it's a bit out of my area, as you, might, you can imagine, Michael, that's what I'm hearing. And for whatever reason, I just don't know, understand why the, you know, the local knowledge hasn't been taken into account. And, it, and that is, seems to be the catalyst for a lot of things, as I said, from east to west, north to south. Uh, there seems to be this reluctance to take into local knowledge. Um, I'm not saying that the locals should be the decision makers by any means, but they should have a seat at the table and the information that they have should be taken into account and treated seriously. And right up the chain so that you know the decision makers right at the top know what's going on. Well, that's right. And, and again, this is out of a pay grade above me, but I'm not sure whether the, the right people are getting the right information, uh, to be honest with you. Um, and, and that's what it appears when we where we sit. And I certainly hope after the, this is all over that there's a very constructive sit-down and uh, preferably behind closed doors so people can be quite frank and everything else and, and get a system that actually works you know, pretty well. Um, but this one appears to be uh, lacking in some areas. Guys, I just know from here and the people around around, um, you know, around in our area, in the Louth Tilpa Burke area especially, that um, you know, whatever uh, name we put on it, but our management had to change because, you know, what we were dealing with was changing. Mm. So you could argue, is the climate change, is the, is the climate variation, is it cyclic or whatever else? The, the fact is that, that it has changed and it needs to be taken into account in what you do. You also think that what in New South Wales in the equation, they're, they, they're not in the right position as decision makers, that SES uh, aren't in the right position in, as decision makers. What, what are your concerns there? Unfortunately, I think there's um, you know, agency pride maybe, I don't know, whatever you call it, but there's certainly not enough transparency and accountability between the agencies, you know, the computer systems aren't compatible and, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a mile of things that, but, but the people you know, running these, these things don't seem to be able to uh, coordinate information and certainly when they're not getting it out to us quick enough and, you know, it's just simple, you know, gauge calibrations, you know, like there was, I think, a five centimetre difference when they recalibrated the gauge in Laos, for example, um, yeah, which we, you know, I found out in a different method, but but we weren't told, and it doesn't mean it's just all it is. It's just a release, you know, send an email, um, recalibrating the gauge at Louth. Um, you know, it is, you know, what was thirteen thirty eight is now thirteen forty three. And I guess the other thing about the the, the creek uh, uh, pushing in the flooding, extra flooding into Menindi that wasn't taken into account, things like that. Yeah, well, that's right. There's no gauges. Look, I'm, look, I'm aware it only runs every whatever it is, one every ten years or. 15 years or five years, but that to me is irrelevant. The gauge is set up there, um, especially in this, in, when it does run and you do get an incident, of, you know, like the Darling with a lot of water in it, the tally walker makes a hell of a lot of difference as they found out now. So the gauging on it, there needs to be a couple more gauges put on it. To make it's not it. hard to do that, is it? It's easy. They could do it. Well, I'm, as far as I'm concerned, they can, yeah. They've got a lot of sites set up on the Barwon Darling system for extra gauges now, which is really welcome and it gives you a lot more information and it gives you more accurate information but you know like for example to go from 9.6 in Menindee to 13. Uh, to uh, 10.7 in what 36 hours or whatever it was you know like it's um, in this day and age with the technology around that's not good enough and that could aid in the management of water too you know where people are being accused of stealing water it would stop oh, that too there's all that sort of stuff but I, you know, I think that's an argument for another time I just think we yeah. You know, but it all comes down, I suppose, the point you're making comes down to the management of water. 
where the buck stops, um, you know, where technology and science and everything else should be used and isn't being used and all this other stuff. And I do agree with you on that. There seems to be a, a fair gap in uh, accountability in this water game, whether it's flooding or, or whether it's in the middle of a drought. And I think that's a, you know, a major issue. That was Stuart Laleva. He's a grazier between Louth and Tilpa, speaking with Michael Condon. Brooke Nindorf with you. It's coming up to a quarter to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Now, South Australia might be facing a flood emergency at the moment, but three years ago, fires swept through the Adelaide Hills and on Kangaroo Island. The Adelaide Hills communities have come together since then to now just rebuild what was there, but also make changes to improve the landscape as well. Bushfire recovery team leader Caroline Dorr explains some of the changes that have taken place. Well, it's looking certainly looking a lot greener than it did three years ago. And I would like to say that it's looking a lot better. And there are certainly places in the landscape where you, you can still very much see that a fire has been through there, particularly through that Cubley Creek area, the steep areas where the fire burnt very hot. There are a lot of sort of dead trees on the forestry land. And as you sort of come up back to the back of Lobethal. But out in the eastern areas, it's certainly very pretty green and lush and people are cutting hay and there are a lot of fat cows out there. But probably what is most encouraging at the moment is really how the community has moved on and changed. And, you know, there's real energy out there. There are certainly a lot of different stages of recovery still within the community. We certainly accept that. But we're seeing real commitment to the landscape, real interest and uptake in our programs motivation to recover and also some real acceptance that it could happen again and that we need to improve the way we we manage our land and build in some resilience. And how are you going about building in that resilience? We've been running our our bushfire recovery project. was born out of a relationship with primary industries and regions South Australia. So together we applied for local economic recovery funding um, and this was made available through the National Disaster Recovery Agencies. So certainly funding is, is it's helped a lot and this has allowed us to address a lot of the fire driven impacts in the landscape and um, within our scope what that looks like is uh, pest plants and animals water course restoration and looking at soil and pasture issues that have generally been made worse by fire some of our key successes to date uh, we've managed to directly help landholders to control over 300 hectares of woody weeds. We provide a lot of rabbit bait to to, uh, landholders because certainly having favourable seasons thereafter has also pushed our rabbit numbers along. We've put in a lot of watercourse fencing, which will certainly help with future fire situations. So you can imagine a lot of uh, creeks get very eroded and also full of sediment following a fire. So if you can keep the livestock out of those areas and install all steel fencing, which is something that becomes the default for our project certainly helps protect those creeks. We've also, through the fire, we lost a lot of our very old paddock tree because some of them, you know, were sort of quite hollowed out and the fire was quite hot, so a lot of them died. And we've been able to, in partnership with our local community nurseries, grow a lot of native plants that we've distributed, sort of over 59,000 actually, that we've distributed out to the community directly, but also had planted in some priority areas. And I think one of the other 
really important resilience building factors has been bringing the community together when people are net, networked and talking to their neighbours and they're, they're stronger together and we've managed to pull off around about 26 different field days. And so how much fencing have you done with all these people who want to be involved? Yeah. So, um, yeah, our fencing has been very much focused on creeks. So, I mean, just for scale, there's something like 700 kilometres of creeks that are within just the Cudley Creek fire scar. So you have to sort of, you know, we don't have funding to fence off all of those creeks, but we've managed to, to pick out some really key priorities in those areas and certainly uh, uh, permanent pools. So areas in creek lines where you have water that, that is there for most of the year are really important to the landscape. So they sort of, you know, they're the lifeblood. It's where you get huge numbers of birds coming in to drink and you get a lot of um, water plants and all of the, the things that keep the landscape going. So fencing off those areas, they're also the areas that are very susceptible post-fire, they get really silted up. So um, prioritising creek lines that have um, large numbers of permanent pools has been really important. So we've managed to install over 15 kilometres of fencing in the fire scar across our three different project areas and 10 kilometres of that is continuous fencing specifically for looking after the crested shrike tit and I would certainly encourage anyone who doesn't know what a crested shrike tit is to go and look it up. It's a very charismatic little bird. It's a punk looking guy. He's got a, a yellow chest and he's got a, a, a black mohawk and it's and sort of a white face so he's a is very very cool little bird. Is it remarkable at the moment to be focusing on fire recovery where you are when there is a flood situation going on in South Australia as well? Yes, it is definitely. Um, it, it it seems it does seem quite strange, but we really do need to accept that you know our our climate is our climate is changing, and that there is no question that these events are going to happen again. And we've learnt so much through this project around how we can build back infrastructure and build resilience back into the landscape so that when it does happen again, we can be sure that our creeks are better protected and that we have more remaining habitat for native species. And, and also going forward, we've, we've even produced a few resources around how to revegetate for lowering, for lowering fire risk so that people can do activities on their properties without worrying so much about just being able to be confident that they're doing the right thing. And how much longer will the Bushfire Recovery Project go for? Originally, this project was for, for one year and we were able to extend it out into two years, which has been, been critical to its success because the community is, you know, they're moving forward at a, at a really different rate. So we have to be able to meet them where, where they're up to. So at the moment, we're into our second year and that will run out at the end of June 2023. The Cudley Creek fire was a really tough event for our community, but we have been, really been able to turn it into an opportunity and... This community is closer. You know, people are, are talking to one another. They're work, willing to work across their property boundaries for the for the greater good of their landscape. Hills and Fluo Landscape Boards team leader of fire recovery Caroline Dore speaking to Cassie Huff. Now, I've been asking for your tips on how to pick a good summer fruit. You can send me a text on 0467 922 891. And as a feature of the holiday table spread, or it might be at a backyard cricket competition or as a sweet treat on the beach, fresh fruit doesn't fail to hit the spot. Until it does, that is. Lucy Cooper reports. 
The experience of biting into a cherry or taking a chunk out of a watermelon piece can be soured when the fruit doesn't quite taste right. But the experts are here to help with some tips and tricks for picking the best fruit off supermarket shelves. Larry Griffin, uh, manager of the Townsville um, Simon George and Sons. So as we enter December, we do come across some lovely stone fruit. It's been a really tough start of the season for a lot of farmers just the the rain across the entire eastern seaboard there's good stuff out there it's going to be a little bit more expensive this year Um, all i can recommend is try to pick fruit that's a little bit riper shelf life has been affected with all the rain so if you pick the right product you know you're getting a quality product and how you tell something's ripe is you just give a little touch should be a little bit um, soft and it should have a delicious smell so if you're not getting a really good smell it's not ripe and You can take the risk and buy it early if you want, but I'd recommend probably trying another fruit line. So we have some beautiful plums here. Um, They are dark purple. They're a little bit um, soft to touch. Um, Smells not quite there yet. Give it another day or two, it's probably gonna come along. And plums are eating the best um, at the moment out of all the stone fruit. And the season shouldn't be as affected as much because that plum season starts later and goes through to May. So where are these uh, plums coming from? These plums are currently coming from Victoria. They they look wonderful at the moment. Uh, In terms of people all across Australia, you'll be really consuming fruit from the entire country this Christmas, won't you? Yes, you will. Yep. Perfect. Moving on, uh, let's hit these guys. What have we got? So we got some beautiful peaches at the moment. Um, We are buying them in firm just so they travel all right and then we're ripening them up on site for our clients. Again, just wait for them to just be a little bit soft and have that beautiful smell before purchasing. For these white peaches, they always go well at Christmas time, fresh or, or whether you might grill them and chuck them through a salad. What should you be looking at when you're going to go purchase some peaches? Is it, is it Does fuzz matter or something? Well, peaches have fuzz, so if you're looking at a fuzzy um, fruit, it's probably going to be a peach. If there's no fuzz, it's going to be a nectarine. Just looking for something that's not blemished, has a nice smell. Um, a little bit um, tiny spots are okay. That, those can be sugar spots. It just means the fruit's going to be really sweet as it ripens. Wow. Okay. And finally, up the top, something that I think many Australians love, especially at Christmas time, is delightful apricots. Apricots have been eating fantastic this year for Australian fruit, especially so early. Um, They do not look the best because they have been weather affected. So again, pay attention to more how it's smelling and how it's feeling um, and and go by that and don't mind the odd blemish or dimple on them. They're still going to eat really good. And if you're cooking with them, then, you know, the little blemish is not going to matter at all. I would say uh, apricots are probably the most temperamental out of all the stone fruit. And a lot of people are always so disappointed when you bite in and it's just not quite right. Yeah. So it's that, is, are we talking of smell like a really strong apricot smelling? Uh, yeah, you should get a decent apricot smell from them. They should be soft to touch. Um, you're really looking for the smell most of all. Larry Griffin, the Townsville base manager for fruit and vegetable wholesaler Simon George and Sons. Keeping with stone fruit, Here is Tim Reid of Reid's Fruits in Tasmania discussing how best to pick cherries. Best if the cherries are shiny, the skin is shiny, and ideally the stem on the cherry is green. It's a demonstration of freshness. Once the stems get a bit dry, it's demonstrating they may have been picked for quite a while or 
they haven't been in refrigeration. So, you know, the best cherries are, are those shiny-looking fresh ones and uh, that's probably the best way to select a good cherry. Tim Reid, Managing Director, Reid's Fruits, Tasmania. Let's move tropical now and I'm going to give you a pineapple tip. You want to make sure your fruit is an orange-reddish colour on the outside and if you grab a pineapple leaf from the top of the fruit, if it pulls out easy, then that pineapple is ripe and ready to eat. Staying in the tropics, it's a Queensland delicacy, so let's find out from Lee Spence of Lambert's Produce in Townsville how to pick the best lychee. So at the moment we're looking at uh, local Ingham lychees. Uh, at the moment they're really ripe, ready to eat. They lose their greenness, uh, they lose the green out of them and they become sort of a bright, vibrant red colour. Uh, that's when they're ripe, ready to peel. Uh, they will always have a little bit of green around the stem, but... For the most of the fruit, when the most of the fruit is red, it'll be nice and ripe, ready to eat. Do you think our fruit butters will be costing a bit more this year compared to previous years? Yes, definitely. Um, price of cherries is one of the main ones. Uh, they're going to be a little bit high this year. Uh, strawberries are on their way up as well, unfortunately. Uh, things that are like grapes, lychees. We've got local lychees at the moment, so they've come down in price. Uh, our grapes are nice and cheap at the moment. And... Um, our mangoes should be coming down as well. We have buckets of mangoes. They're nice and cheap. Okay, so we have ticked most summer fruit off except for the mighty mango. He is mango grower Ben Martin of Bowen with his best tips and tricks. Have a good smell of the fruit. Um, you'll pick the mango up, don't squeeze it too hard, and but you should be able to smell the aroma um, of it coming through. Um, and, yeah, look at your colour and your, your shape of it and, yeah, you'll get a nice product. A few good tips there. That was North Queensland mango grower Ben Martin uh, finishing that story from Lucy Cooper. And you can head to the ABC Rural website to read some more tips and tricks on putting your best summer fruit platter together. I've had uh, a lot of texts come through on this uh, this topic. I was asking uh, what your favourite summer fruit is, but also any tips and tricks on how to pick a good one. Uh, mango is absolutely the best summer fruit. The pet bearded dragon loves it too. That's from Kay at Happy Valley. Nothing better than a good refrigerated watermelon brook. That's from Chook. He says, long-time listener, first-time cooler. Thanks, Chook. Best summer fruit is picked from a peach tree. Delicious. I did like mangoes until I spent three weeks in Townsville in the mango season. That was from Matt from Val here in Port Lincoln. Uh, Where's at Coffin Bay? Says, uh, shake the apricot tree. The right ones will fall off when you shake it. That's a, that's a good tip there as well. And also... Um, Good point here from Kath. She says, choose fruit with your eyes, not by handling, so that you don't damage fruit for other people. So if you handle it, it's yours. And she's enjoying some raspberries now. So thanks very much for your text, Kath, on that one. And as I said, you can find out more online about those out, those summer fruit tips online at abc.net.au slash rural. And while you're online, you can uh, check out uh, the story on this uh, this latest flood funding that's been announced just this morning, 126.25 million dollars will be available for further disaster assistance for communities hit by the flooding that peaked in Renmark on Boxing Day and is subsequently uh, impacting downriver areas. So there's nine local government areas that uh, that will be available to, uh, to apply for that funding. And it includes uh, a wide range of, uh, of different uh, uh, grants there from uh, small business recovery grants, waste management grants, primary producer grants. So um, you can find out more at abc.net.au. Now, I'll be back with you tomorrow in the, uh, the lunchtime of the cricket.
hopefully it's uh, not rain affected for them. But uh, yeah, we'll be with you maybe for a shortened program tomorrow. But uh, we're definitely back at some point tomorrow. So make sure you tune in. That's all we've got time for. Thanks very much for your company today. I'm Brooke Nindorf. It's coming up to news time. It's one o'clock. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.